This is IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. This episode of IEDA In Your Ear is sponsored by Hoosier Energy. I'm Lee Llewellyn. I usually try not to spend too much time talking on our podcasts, but I want to provide some personal context for today's conversation with Marsh Davis. Marsh is the president of Indiana Landmarks, and a few years ago, it would have seemed out of context to be talking about historic preservation within the realm of economic development. Uh, But yet, as economic development has become more dependent upon attracting and retaining talent, Communities have become more focused on creating and preserving quality of place as one component of a systematic approach to attracting and keeping residents. So it seems to me that some communities have identified historic preservation as part of their quality of place strategy and really as a way of preserving, creating, uh, highlighting the, the quality and the unique character of a community. So it's that trend that's brought me to spend some time uh, talking to Marsh Davis today. Uh, We want to understand how preserving and rehabilitating historic structures can contribute to a community's efforts to maintain its unique character and how those efforts are contributing to creating and sustaining vibrant communities. So Marsh, thank you very much for spending some of your valuable time with me today. Thank you. Great opportunity. Glad to do it. So I, I'm not sure I got this right, but you've been with Indiana Landmarks for 13 or 14 years? Yeah, right in the middle of that, actually. So okay. you're, you're correct. Yeah. All right. No, I, st- I started here as an intern though, a long time ago, but went away for a while. So as president, though, I've been here about 13 and a half years. 13 and a half. Okay. Right you in the middle. It. You got it. So <clears throat> I don't know what you've seen in the period of time that you've been doing this, but but how have you seen attitudes, at least in Indiana, change toward the whole notion of historic preservation? Without getting too anecdotal, which I intend to do, but uh, there, let me start with just some observations from, from maybe outside of, of, of my immediate world. Um, you mentioned economic revitalization and the tool that historic preservation is for that. Uh, our, probably our greatest student and scholar of preservation economics is a guy named Don Ripkema. In fact, we hired him uh, a couple of years ago to do a study of, of the impact of historic designation in Indianapolis, but he studied cities and towns across the world. And one of my favorite observations that Don has offered, he said, he said, he said I've been to, to hundreds of cities and towns. He goes to like 100 of them every year. He said, I cannot find one that has experienced economic revitalization where historic preservation has not been a part of that. So that's something I think that has been recognized uh, recently, and then maybe that's part of the change that you're, you're alluding to. It's taken some time for us to articulate that, that, that it's not just about aesthetics or about history. You know, people often say we're trying to preserve the past. You can't preserve the past no more than you can go back in time. That's, that's nonsense. We're trying to preserve stuff that is valuable to us today and we think will be valuable to future generations. So we can set that, that nostalgic view of preservation aside. We can look, I think, more, more seriously at, at the economic um, components to it and what it does for the, the quality of life in a community. Well, so how do you, so you're touching upon sort of the economic impact. 
but but how how does a community experience that through through uh, through historic preservation revitalization? Um, how do they see that? One measure might be to look at our our cities in Indiana as across the country, but since we're talking about Indiana. Um, Look at the, the rebirth of, of Indianapolis, for instance. It wasn't too long ago where people didn't live downtown. What's, what sparked so much of that was, number one, the, the revitalization of the historic neighborhoods, such as the one we're sitting in right now, the Old North Side, where people began to come back and reinvest in these old houses. But just as importantly were the, were the apartment buildings and the, the more urbanized places that uh, began to be restored in the 1980s and brought a huge population back downtown, which has really been the life lifeblood of our city. And look at it now, that the population downtown continues to grow both in historic and in new buildings. But the, the, the catalyst, the harbinger of a lot of that was the work that historic preservationists were doing back in the 70s and 80s. And we, we, we sparked some of that in, in Lockerbie Square in 1976 when, I mean, Lockerbie Square was pretty rough. Now it's a very desirable neighborhood. Well, and you've touched upon this, though, uh, the sense that I think when people are, are talking about this, and, and you and I have both heard this conversation, um, well, these are just old buildings. Um, and you touched upon, well, we're just, all you're trying to do is preserve the past. Um, and so we want a modern city, so let's, why should we keep these old buildings when, when they're, they're, they're really just relics of the past. What difference does it make? That's a big part of our challenge over time. Is, is and It sounds condescending to say to educate people, but that's a lot of what our, our work involves is, is trying to reveal to people that these old landmarks are not just old relics that have no use, but that they actually have utility, that they have, they have um, adaptive use potential. Um, so many of the, the, the buildings which were deemed obsolete, vacant hulks, are now thriving as, for instance, uh, residential properties. I mean, look at one of the, one of the most interesting projects in our city was uh, what's now the Stadium Lofts, the old Bush Stadium. It was endangered for, for decades. It was on our list twice. And there was no, it was deemed an eyesore, it was obsolete, and ended up being the site of cash for clunkers full of junk cars. And uh, John Watson, a developer, former board chair of Indiana Landmarks, had a, had a vision for that that ultimately was embraced by the community. And now, I mean, it was sold out before, before it was even finished. The old Bush Stadium baseball park is now uh, residential apartments. So that's, a, that's taking something that was deemed obsolete and, and with no purpose, and it's been an amazing success. And you look at some of the other old industrial buildings that have been repurposed. Well, so I'm thinking about um, a few years ago, I was taking photos uh, in South Bend uh, around the ballpark. And uh, one of, the, one of the, the structures up there was the, um, um, help me. Former uh, synagogue, right? Right, the synagogue. That's now their, their um, uh, like their clubhouse. Where, where they, they sell tickets and uh, yeah. sell uh, merchandise, yeah. And, and, you know, that was, there's an opportunity, and it's a beautiful structure inside, but, and it's a very unique reuse. Uh, but certainly, I think there was an example where, where a community saw an opportunity to integrate something that could quite easily have been 
a distraction, yeah. and yet it turned out to be a real complement to what they were doing up there. Well, we're, we're actually sitting in a classic example of an adaptive reuse, where an old Methodist church that had been the congregation had left in the, in the mid-90s, and by the time we got involved um, around 2008 or nine, uh, this place had no future. It was in really bad shape mm-hmm. and crumbling, and now it's not only our state headquarters, but it also serves the community as a, as a performing arts and cultural center. Uh, a, a great success of a building that was deemed by many to be obsolete. And I mean, we tried to find, before we moved in here, we were desperately trying to find a new use for this place, but it's worked out very well for us. And we see this you know, across the state too. So as, as communities are looking at these opportunities and they're, they're trying to find ways to, to stimulate uh, the reuse uh, the rehabilitation of those structures, then as they would look at uh, Indiana landmarks, what kind of assistance can you provide to communities that are trying to figure out what to do, how to do it, um, and, and how to stimulate some of those conversations? Well, part of it starts with that, <coughs> with the uh, trying to convince people they've got something of real value. You know, we tend to devalue things in our own neighborhoods and our own main streets. We want to travel somewhere else to look at something historic. We've got a lot of it here, right in our own backyards and on our main streets. So that's that's part of our mission is just um, uh, awakening people to the great heritage we have in our state. But beyond that, then how do you how do you how do you take something and then move it forward where it actually be, becomes um, rescued and preserved and, and reinvestment occurs? And that we typically offer. Uh, we have professional staff in, in nine offices around Indiana, which makes us unique in the country as far as a preservation organization. There's no other organization that has that kind of resources. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's our usually our first port of, point of contact with these professionals that we have in these nine offices, and they then can work with uh, whoever is is uh, advocating for the preservation. We often start with with a grant that would. Uh, would fund a feasibility study. Is this possible to save? Is it does it make economic sense? Does it make structural sense? That's all. Having good information is one of the key things we try to provide in in projects where you don't know if it's going to go one way or the other. The more information, the more credible data you have, the, the better served we are. So there's a grant, uh, but what kind of expertise? Uh, I mean, uh, exists in the state to answer those questions. I mean, so how, how does someone, if they, if they are even trying to ask that question, how at a local community do you, do you even get your hands around that question? Is it worth saving? You know, what are the structural challenges, opportunities? Um, who does that? Well, there are many qualified people. I, I would say most of the issues we deal with at that level tend to be architectural or engineering related. Right. So <clears throat> we've, how many times have we been told well, that building's you can't save it, it's too far gone. Can't do it. My, I got my earliest experiences in, in this in Rush County when the county commissioners wanted to tear down their covered bridges. And hmm. they were telling the people in the community, based on their engineers' reports, that these things are beyond the pale. You can't save them. You we could have fixed them 10 years ago, but they're gone now. Get rid of them. Well, we brought in our own engineers <coughs> who, an independent uh, analysis, said these things can be fixed. And today, the, the, the county government uh, cherishly, uh, cherishes these things and, and jealously guards their, their preservation. So that's, that, again, is, is bringing in an engineer to, to, give you, to give a counter opinion. So that's probably the, the most uh, common t- 
type of grant or feasibility study that we fund, but sometimes it's it's more based on economics. Is there a sustainable plan for for if you have a restored building, what are you going to do with it in the future? What's it what's its future going to be, and can it can you create a, a viable economic plan for it? Okay, that's a little harder, right? So so what other kinds of assistance? What other kinds of advice? Um, can you offer communities that are going through that process? Because I know sometimes it's a it's a hard sell. Yeah. Well, we work so uh, in so many ways with communities. I mean, one of the one of the key things we've done over the years is to organize um, local nonprofit organizations. You move you come into a community, and, and there's no organized entity to deal with preservation. That's been a mainstay <clears throat> for decades, and Really, we can't go in unilaterally and say, you got to save this or that. It, we, we only work well when we have local partners, and that's very key. And you look at our successes around the state. It, nearly everyone involves local partnership, local buy-in. So that's what we spend a lot of time doing is, is developing local support for preservation. And then that can lead, and you get an organized group, then that group can, can then receive grants, both from us and from, from outside sources, and can be the voice of preservation at the local level where it really is most important. Okay. So we have an example, um, again, where, where we're making the connection back to economic development. Uh, so we do have an example of, of a project that I know you were involved in with an IEDA member in Pulaski County. Yeah. I remember probably about a year ago, uh, I was sitting with Nathan Oreger in Pulaski County, and he said, well, you know, he had been presented with the challenge um, of trying to justify um, not tearing down the 1895 Romanesque limestone um, uh, courthouse in Pulaski County. And I know at some point he reached out to you and Indiana Landmark. So talk a little bit about a case study of, of how that process occurred in uh, Winnemac and kind of where we are now. Yeah, well, Nathan was great, by the way. What a, what a wonderful asset to that community. Um, I thought we were past the point where we would actually contemplate tearing down well, a... Well, I, I thought we were past that, uh, that conversation but, as well. But we, we weren't. This was a very serious, a very, a serious threat to that building. And it's, it's, you know, Indiana has a tremendous history of, of county courthouses. We were one of the states back in the late 19th, early 20th century that just went, out, went all out for these things. We're kind of subtle. Hoosiers are mostly kind of understated, but not with our county courthouses. So they're really, uh, of the 92 counties, I think we have about 80, 81, 82 that still have their historic county courthouses. I think it like may that. actually be more than that. Yeah. Um, and there are some counties that had multiple courthouses, but right. by and large, we've, we've been able to hang on to most of them. And they're really, I mean, great landmarks. So to think that this one was, was actively threatened was, was something that was alarming to us. Um, so, uh, of course, in addition to Nathan, we were contacted by local people. There was not an organized presence there. There was a historical society, but not a historic preservation group, per se. So uh, the, the um, interest in preserving the courthouse needed to be, I think, focused a little more. What we could have done, which is what a lot of organizations might do, is to, to you know, storm the gates with banners and, and pitchforks and say, stop this, don't do that. No. And so what we decided to do, and I'm very proud of this, we said, no, they've got decisions to, to be made based on, on cost and safety. Let's provide them good information that, will be, that, could, that could lead the path to an alternative. 
and that's what we did. We, we, this was a more expensive grant than, it wasn't actually a grant, we funded it outright. Um, uh, we hired the same architect that the, the county was working with on Plan A, which involved demolition of the, the courthouse. We said, well, they've got credibility with the county. Let's hire that same architecture firm to look at, at, at a Plan B, which would allow us to save the courthouse and bring it up to modern standards. It would meet this, what would it cost to meet the functional safety concerns that they had? And that's what we did. And with working with Roland Designs, we presented them with a range of options. And at this point, it's not a done deal yet, but it looks pretty good is that the county is going to make the decision to, to preserve the building. What we were able to demonstrate through this study was that it actually can cost less to preserve the building and bring it up to speed. And this is what we find not just in Winnemac, but time after time, if, if we have the, the space and the time to dig a little deeper and, and provide good data, we often find that it's not only saves the, the aesthetic value of, of, of the community, but it, it also saves money. Well, and, and I think, because I think, I don't think I realized this until I had a, a colleague of mine um, who's, I mean, commercial buildings in downtown Crawfordsville uh, caught fire one weekend. And uh, yeah. it never really occurred to me, I mean, how expensive uh, demolition and disposal, especially when you're dealing with, you know, potentially sort of hazardous material, if there's been asbestos, I mean, you can't just, you can't just dig a hole and dump that stuff. And so I think, uh, I don't think people often think about how expensive demolition and disposal is uh, relative to other kinds of things. Uh, so I know that was uh, interesting, but I, but I think I remember uh, perhaps you shared with me, I mean, it was a significant difference between what it was going to cost to tear it down and or preserve it. Yeah, well, and there's another cost, not just dollar cost, there, there's the environmental cost of filling our landfills with, with buildings when they can be repurposed. And there's a lot of a lot of hype about, you know, green buildings and, and lead standards and so forth. There's a common phrase in the historic preservation world, the greenest building is the one that already exists. When you tear down a building, you're, you're losing a lot of energy mm -hmm. and you're, you're creating mess for the landfill, toxic materials, as you said. Um, the alternative is actually much better for the environment. Well, you know, and again, I, I think we've seen, we've seen this change uh, over time in Indiana. Um, as, as I think people are beginning to reflect more on uh, the fact that this is part of the unique character of a community uh, in, in preserving, whether it's, whether it's the housing stock, and certainly uh, it's one of the interesting things right now in, in Indiana is that we have a significant housing shortage as we're trying to attract residents uh, so reinvesting in existing housing stock becomes critical, and it's just part of that unique character. You can't, if you look at that courthouse in Pulaski County, the workmanship, the quality, uh, that probably could never be replicated. No, uh, not with, probably. It could not. It okay. absolutely could not. Well, just could not I mean, uh, within all possibility yeah so so I, I think I think Hoosiers are beginning to recognize that that's part of the unique character of the state 
once it's gone, it's gone. And 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 I've often said I had used to have this conversation with my mom, who was always wondering why are you taking pictures of these old buildings? And I would try to explain, you know, that that. You know, I would be there one year and take a picture of an old building and come back a year later and that old building would be gone and it would be replaced with a new pole barn. And her yeah. response was always, well, what's the matter with a new pole barn? And it's like, well, nothing on a farm, but, you know, when you get into your downtown communities and you're putting up vinyl buildings uh, that have a very, very short lifespan, uh, it really, it really downgrades the character and the quality of that experience of of someone's downtown yes that's absolutely right and that's why we try to create incentives that's why there are local historic districts that that seek to protect that character not everybody likes historic districts because it does provide some regulation of property but if you look at the f impact of these historic districts by and large they have they have stabilized neighborhoods. They have improved uh, property values. They've improved um, the in foreclosure circumstances. For instance, back in the downturn in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, foreclosures in in uh, protected historic districts was vastly lower than in, in the surrounding neighborhoods. There are all kinds of of, of um, positive effects of, of local preservation designation. We have. I think about 18 historic districts here in Indianapolis, and by and large, they perform in so many measures better than their neighboring surrounding neighborhoods. It's just it's, there's solid data to back that up. It's not just an opinion, but again, it, it's it's a give and take because uh, in this neighborhood here, Old North Side, and we we went through it with this building. We had to go through lots of we had to get permission to do many things to make this building functional. But in the end, it was a much better product, and it preserves the the investment that people make in their property. So, and I know each year you do the 10 most endangered as a way of bringing um, attention to uh, properties around the state. Um, you've had some you've had some remarkable saves. Um, there probably have been some remarkable losses. What do you consider in your time? I mean, let's take this building out of that out of that mix. But in your time with Indiana Landmarks, what do you think has been the most critical success that you've seen uh, that's that's come through your process? Well, if I could go back to an earlier era when I I was here, but I wasn't president, no question that the West Baden Springs Hotel <clears throat> was um, uh, that opportunity will never come again. But but that was a really ballsy thing that that or this organization did to buy that place and uh, try over time to stabilize, just keep it from falling apart. The, the, the absolutely serendipitous um, entrance of the Cook family made it possible, and as did here. But um, that, was, that, that will outshine just about any preservation project by the sheer magnitude of it. Oh, and yeah. what a remarkable facility. And it's just, you know, when you're there, yeah. um, and you look around and you think, what a tremendous loss that would have been had mm -hmm. that not been uh, saved and you know that's been just a tremendous boon i mean for years and years and years i mean the the residents of orange county would show up in their orange t-shirts at the general assembly trying to make the case that orange county needed uh, a shot in the arm and uh you know that's been just a tremendous uh 
just a turnaround for that entire community. Well, some of these some of these in, most endangered places have re- resulted in remarkable saves, and, and all different scales. We're going from the scale of West Baden, go down to Southwest Indiana in Gibson County, Lyle Station, the last remaining African American farming community. We saved that little crossroads town from extinction by saving the school mm-hmm. it took many years and a lot of work and a lot of money but lyle station is now a highly significant uh, historic place and it's also linked into the the smithsonian in washington i remember when they were i think when they were launching the african-american uh, museum mm-hmm. at the smithsonian i think lyle station was there's even was soil from lyle station in, in that museum okay. so that's that's a whole different scale and then I think the Pulaski County Courthouse is is also a, a remarkable save because it was such an important building, and uh, shocking that it would be so endangered. So I that's very recent, and I I'm so looking forward to a positive outcome from that. It said it's not over yet, but I think we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, I was that was again one of those where I thought I know when we had gone through all of that and um I don't remember when when it was but uh the Randolph County Courthouse and we oh, had yeah, yeah. we had the uh, courthouse ladies right. calendars <laughs> and that was a huge well but I think that was that was a huge community effort where where I think um uh, the community really mobilized around that particular project, and it, it it was a catalyst not only around the courthouse, but I think it was a catalyst for that community and really sort of looking at itself. And uh, I think, I mean, my sense is that some of these projects can have, in some cases, I think that that kind of catalytic. Well, I think another another really, uh, I think, interesting community project uh, was the Fowler Theater, mm-hmm. uh, where, again, I think this was a catalytic uh, opportunity where a community yep. gathered around, and the community is still very involved. I mean, they volunteer to pop the popcorn and take the tickets and do uh, all of that so people can have that movie theater. Um, and so I think it's I think in some cases it can be more than just a building. I think it can become a, a true sort of community hallmark event. Yeah, you took the words I was going to say. So much of what we do is so much more than about a building. Uh, one another re- recent favorite project of mine was the North Christian Church in Columbus. This is a internationally recognized piece of modern architecture designed by Eero Saarinen, National Historic Landmark. The congregation was was on the ropes. I mean, they were shrinking, and the building's air conditioning had failed. And we worked through a variety of ways. We worked to uh, secure funds for them. There was a wonderful program funded by the Lilly Endowment through Partners for Sacred Places. Um, with a lot of advocacy on our part, they were able to get a large grant to take care of that. But we also worked with the Disciples of Christ and brought them in to help the congregation. And now that that has turned around, and it's it's the the decline has stopped and and so it's not i mean to think that we might have had an active role in saving a, a very meaningful congregation in a stunning building that that means a lot you know it's way more than just the building but i think it was also surprising to me because i think of columbus as sort of having all of the answers intact within that community and so i think when when uh, it became apparent that there was a an asset in Columbus yeah. uh, that was being threatened. Um, it was uh, again sort of a wake up call that you know that this can happen. Uh, well, the lesson there is never take anything for granted. Well, that's it's, right. Yeah, yeah. 
That's right. Well, so you touched upon Lyle Station, but I think, uh, I, I think as I recall, looking through uh, literature in preparation for this, uh, you, you have provided um, assistance to help identify those uh, uh, historic African-American sites and, and have, have also uh, stepped up in a, a number of cases to make sure that Indiana's African-American uh, uh, history is also preserved. Yeah, we, we formed an African-American Landmarks Committee back, I think it was in 1992, and it's been active ever since. And, and through all the things we talked about as far as technical assistance, grants, hand-holding, advocacy, we have worked with dozens of really important sites across the state. And I think we have a, a very vibrant African-American heritage and the interest seems to be growing in that. So it's, it's been a really gratifying thing to be a part of. Okay. So I think you touched upon this, but let's finish up by just uh, t talking a little bit about uh, what's the best way uh, to engage Indiana Landmarks, uh, to engage with, with your organization, mm -hmm. uh, and as communities are perhaps looking at um, inventorying understanding what they have uh, how would they engage you well one is just to contact contact us directly we, again we have these nine offices around the state so we're and these these people know their communities well and they're they're a great resource so you could always just just contact us here at the state headquarters and then we will send the information out to the regional offices and that number is 800-450-4534 it's that that simple as far as to getting getting a hold of us but there's another layer too that i hope people will consider and that is we've worked hard to 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 form and sustain local historic preservation organizations and you know people don't join as much as they used to these days so many of these have have kind of timed out or they're just the, the, the members are older but if people want to really get engaged in preservation it often starts at the neighborhood level or the community level where there's an organization like rush county heritage which Got, that saved the covered bridges or the old north side we're sitting in now that, that led the way to, to preserve this neighborhood. That's really the, the entry level in, in so many ways. But again, we, we try to do it all, whether it's through an individual property owner or through a local organization or through local government. We try to serve in as many ways as we can. And I'm always amazed, uh, I, and, and I'm always amazed that when I'm talking about uh, things that I'm aware of in com in local communities, um, I'm always amazed at the number of people who sort of don't know what is in their own communities, and even oh. though they see it, and and I and my example of that is, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when I was capturing uh, photos of the New Deal art around the state, most of which are not all murals, but many of them are murals in the uh, post offices. When I would be in those communities talking to people and say, oh, yes, I was just down at your post office taking a picture of the mural there. And they would say, well, I'm in the post office every day. I, I've <laughs> never seen it. a mural. <laughs> and so I'm always fascinated how uh, so much of what is around us uh, just becomes part of the background that w we don't always see. How, how, how do you remind people or tell people to be able to appreciate what is in their community because you think about this a lot yeah okay. uh, but I'm always amazed at, and I'm amazed at the number of times that I would have been in before and still I until I started taking photos of the courthouses how many times I would be in a county seat 
and not even be aware of the courthouse, even though it would be this huge monolithic uh, uh, structure. Yeah. Well, I said earlier, we we often start with trying to awaken people to things they have in their own their own main streets, their own, their own backyards. We we always well, there's been a tradition, I think, throughout American culture to devalue what we have at home. We always used to look to Europe for, for our culture, whether it was in music or art, it was everything at Europe. Europe and, and, and architecture, so much was modeled after, after European examples. And what I love is when we can bring it closer to home and really relish not just the, the grand landmarks, but, but the more grainy vernacular architecture, the stuff that grew up out of the, the, the cultures and the people who mm-hmm. lived here. We have our own style of, of um, not high style buildings, but but what we call vernacular or everyday um, houses, for instance, that were patterned after the, the 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 cultures of the people who settled here, and they brought with them traditions. They may have come from Europe, but they filtered through upstate New York, through Pennsylvania, through the Carolinas, and they land here in Indiana with a very distinctive flavor. And the more we can learn to discern those shapes and forms of the buildings, I think the more we can appreciate it. And that's been a real revelation for me through the years is to to try to understand vernacular architecture as well as the the big and beautiful mm-hmm. stuff that mm-hmm. we often consider the great landmarks i appreciate your time is there anything that uh i have that i haven't asked you uh anything that we've left off uh, the conversation well do i have a moment to to make a plug for a public policy that i think might sure absolutely help? okay um indiana is one of maybe 14 states that does not have a historic tax credit for rehabilitation. Um, in the 1976, a federal credit was established and it was, it was uh, upgraded in 1981 and reformed in 1986. But since then, um, the, tax, the federal tax credits, which encourage people to invest in income producing historic properties, um, have yielded, uh, people think, well, a tax credit is money out the door not the case the tax credit actually puts more money back in the coffers at the federal level for every dollar it goes out the door the federal coffers get a dollar 20 and that's not considering all the residual benefits Mm -hmm. of improved communities tax that's just dollar in dollar out Uh, these tax credit projects have created over 2.5 million jobs and as have brought in almost 145 billion in private investment not government but, but brought in 145 billion in private investment, and they've saved over 44,000 historic buildings across the country. Indiana could be well served if we would join with most of the rest of the nation in enacting a viable state historic preservation tax credit to help us address some of these buildings that that have been standing vacant for years. Of the Studebaker mm-hmm, administration mm-hmm. building in South Bend mm-hmm. is, a, is a great example of that. So that's my plug for a little bit of economic public policy that, that uh, Indiana really could use, and uh, it's, it's, it's an embarrassment that we don't have a tax credit. So why don't we? What's been the resistance? Um, <laughs> there are certain leaders in our legislature over time who are averse to tax credits and trying to convince them. I mean, everybody, every entity that has a tax credit thinks that theirs is, is wonderful, and we're no different. But we can demonstrate that our tax credit, state tax credits, federal credits, they return more money to the government coffers than they go out the door. This is not a giveaway. This is all the money in a tax credit project 
is paid back before the credit is rewarded. That's, a, that's something which is really hard to communicate. Hopefully with, with some new uh, leadership at the State House, uh, we can start this discussion again. We used to have a, st a tax credit, but it was the smallest in the country, and it was an embarrassment. And it was finally killed a few years ago, and now we have a small grant program that replaced it. But we would be much better served by a robust state tax credit for historic preservation. That's well, next plug. year's a budget year, so yeah, that well, it'll be the time to start the conversation yeah. and be prepared. Good. All right. Uh, I've been talking today to Marsh Davis, president of Indiana Landmarks. Thank you very much, Marsh, for your time. Lee, thank you. This is great. Thank you. This has been IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. This episode of IEDA In Your Ear was sponsored by Hoosier Energy. Hoosier Energy is community focused. Hoosier Energy is a generation and transmission electric cooperative owned by your local electric cooperative that is focused on your community's growth and vitality by providing affordable, reliable, and safe energy through its balanced generation portfolio. This podcast is copyrighted by the Indiana Economic Development Association, which retains all rights to its content.